Ephesians chapter 3, and uh, we are actually closing off on the theological section of this book. Um, chapters 1 to 3, remember, deals with our position in Christ, which can be summarized by the word sit. We sit, we are seated in the heavenly places. Chapters 4 to 6 verse 9 can be summarized with the word walk. We walk worthy of the calling, and then the end of the book can be summarized by the word stand. We stand against the schemes of the devil. So the whole book can be summarized by sit, walk, stand. And that is what we are called to do. But today we're coming to an important passage. It's a prayer. We are going to study Paul's prayer right at the end of chapter 3 and really see that this is the key for us to walk worthy. This is going to be a transition between who we are in Christ and how we are to walk in Christ as well. So let's read together God's word. Let's read from verse 14. Ephesians chapter 3 from verse 14. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves before you and we ask for your help. We even ask right now, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to strengthen us in our inner being, to help us to understand your word. Lord, we confess we are often dull of hearing. We're often slow to believe and slow to come to, to, to understand and to know who you are. Oh, Lord, I pray that you will use um, this text of your word to strengthen us and to help us to rely on you in prayer that we may walk worthy of the calling with which you have called us. So, Lord, we, we, we depend on you and we trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lover, one thing I love about the Bible is that sometimes the Bible takes us behind the scenes and gives us true insight into someone's life and thoughts. And it's helpful sometimes to see what God has done. It's also helpful to see what the God's people have believed and how they have dealt with issues. And remember last week we looked at um, David's prayer. We were really looking at a very individual prayer, a psalm of David, when he was praying for preservation from God. And today it's another one of those, those texts that God helps us to see Paul's prayer. It's as if God takes us into the prison cell. Remember, Paul is in prison when he was writing this letter. He takes us into the prison cell, into Paul's heart, and inspires Paul to write this letter, to write this prayer for all of us to see and to learn and to imitate, really. It's as if the Lord wants us to see a model prayer and to, see, and to say this is an example of how to pray. Now again, remember there are many prayers in Scripture, so it's always a danger to just take one prayer, like Jabez's prayer, for example, and say, just repeat this prayer for 50 years and you'll be fine, you'll be good. No, don't do that. We take all scripture, all of Scripture's prayers, and, we, and that informs our theology. But this is one of those inspired prayers. It's almost like you can say, this is a prayer of the Holy Spirit. 
If you read this like that, this is the Holy Spirit teaching us how to pray. Wouldn't that be great? Holy Spirit, teach me how to pray. Okay, read Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. And that's really what we are doing. And what God wants us to do with this text is He wants our hearts to be resonating with this text. He wants to reorient our priorities in prayer, how we pray, for what we pray, what should be our priorities in our prayer life. And really, wants, God wants us to come back to, Lord, let your name be honored, let your kingdom come, and let your will be done. Remember, Paul was about to pray in verse 1. Just, just glance over chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He says, for this reason, I, about to pray, and he only finishes that in verse 14. For this reason, you see, I bow my knee. So right in between verse 1 and verse 14, there was this massive bracket or massive pause where Paul is explaining to us why he is suffering and that we should not lose heart in our sufferings. Remember, he was saying, okay, I'm in prison, but don't let that discourage you, dear church. Don't let that discourage you that I'm suffering because this is part of God's plan. God uses suffering to establish his plan. He's not somehow thwarting God's plan. So he's trying to encourage the church, like, don't let my suffering discourage you. But now he resumes his prayer in verse 14. It's as if God, Paul now takes us into his closet into the cell and wants us to see what he's praying for. Now, what is amazing about Paul's prayers, think about this. Paul's in prison, but what is he praying for? Not for release from prison. Not for personal comfort. Not for personal gain, right? What, he's not praying for his sufferings. He's in prison. He has a lot of needs, but that's not what is on his heart. He's praying for spiritual strength. And get this, not spiritual strength for himself. He's praying for spiritual strength for other people, other believers, while he is suffering, while he is in prison. You see, Paul is in prison, but his heart is in, it, in eternity. He is thinking of God's purposes, God's church, and God's people. Paul is suffering, but he knows that God is over it all. God is using his imprisonment for his glory. And therefore, God will take care of him and he is concerned over other people and their spiritual lives and their spiritual good. Beloved, here we already have an important lesson for prayer, an important lesson we need to learn for prayer. Shall you and I wait for life to be easy before we pray? Shall we say, until I have time, then I will pray. Until my life is sorted out, then I will pray. Until we can sleep through with the kids, then I will pray. All the parents say amen there, right? Okay. No, beloved, no. We, we must bow our knees now. We must bow our knees in your current situation. doesn't matter where you are now. You need to bow the knee before the Father as much as we can, as frequently as we can. Because we need it. And we need one another. We need one another's prayers. We need to pray without ceasing. One of the shortest verses in the Bible, 1 Thessalonians 5, says, pray without ceasing. Prayer, I believe, is that great missing link between our theology, what we believe, and our Christian living, how to live it out. It's the great missing link. And John MacArthur, on a sermon on this text, gave a wonderful illustration to help us understand this. Imagine chapter 1 to 3 describes these amazing blessings of the Christian life. Now think of it as the great specs of an amazing V8 engine. It's like here are the specs. This, this is the power we have. This is how amazing this engine is. This is all the blessings you can enjoy. Remember, and, and then re remind yourself, imagine that chapters 4 to 6 is the roadmap. 
Okay, Christian, you have the engine. Here is the map. Go, go, go. Drive. And chapters 3 to 14, verse 14 to 21, is the ignition. Is the turn on. Is the, is the way we get this engine working that we may ride and go and do what we are supposed to do. And you see, that's exactly our problem. Many believers know the specs, know the roadmap, but they, they, they just feel stuck. They feel like, why am I not moving forward? Why can't I seem to kill this habitual sin or, keep, or, or grow in holiness or grow in godliness? Because we neglect prayer. And not just prayer. Remember what James 4 says, we pray, but we pray wrongly. So we pray, we might be prayerful, but we're not praying in accord with God's will. So, so here's the thing. Are you praying? Are you praying for spiritual strength that Christ may dwell in your heart, that you may know his love, the breadth and the height and the depth of his love? Is that that you may be filled with the fullness of God? Is that how we pray? And not just are you praying, are you praying for others? Are you bowing your knees for Jamie and Chandray, for Phil and Esther, for Gareth and Andy? Right? Are we bowing our knees for one another? Lord, strengthen them. Strengthen them with, with your Holy Spirit. I, I love this analogy also that John Piper gave. He says, many of us use prayer like a hotel phone call, like room service, right? We want God to give us a pillow or God to give us extra sheets for our bed. We want, basically, we, we think of prayer as a way to make our lives more comfortable. Now, I, I just want to say nothing wrong with really asking God for your desires and your needs, that's fine. But that's not really the main aim of prayer. That's not really what we should be thinking of when we think of prayer. He says prayer is more like the war walkie-talkie for reinforcements. Ask God to send me more reinforcements. Lord, please send more people. Lord, thwart the purposes of the Mormons. Lord, please stop the, the advances of the Jehovah Witnesses. Lord, let us go out. Let us share the gospel. Strengthen us. Unite us as a church. May we become this city on a hill. May we become holy for your name's sake. Again, it's not wrong to pray for your personal needs. If you have a desire, if you have a longing, make that request known to God. But is that all you pray for? Is that the sum of your prayers? Is that what, what if you take away all the things you pray for yourself, how much is left? Again, when we look at Paul and Paul's prayer, he always prayed for spiritual needs. It's, it's very interesting, or, or at least to my knowledge, always prayed for the spiritual good for the church. And you and I should do the same, or at least that should be our priority in our prayer life. Even in suffering, Lord, use that person's suffering to sanctify them. You see how different that is to just say, Lord, please save that person from prison, save that person from Suffering. Lord, use this suffering for your kingdom, for your name. So that's what we want to do. We want to study this text together and we want to dive into this bottomless ocean of glorious truth for our own hearts and to know how we are to pray. So we look at the person to whom we pray, the petition of our prayer and the praise of prayer. So the text opens up, Paul begins, and as he does in chapter 1, with the person of prayer, the person to whom we pray. Notice he, he focuses on one person of the Trinity. One person, he's praying to a specific person of the Trinity, and he mentions several attributes of God, again, I believe, to feel his faith for prayer. 
And that should encourage you as well. These attributes of God should be close to your lips every time you pray, to encourage you to pray. Look at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Now again, you can pray while standing. You can pray while, while kneeling. But I don't know if you could relate to this. Sometimes the burden in your soul is so heavy that the only way you can pray is to fall down. It's as if the only appropriate physical expression of this heaviness in your soul is to fall down. It's also a sign of humility. It's a sign of, Lord, you are the king. I am nothing. I bow my knee before you, O Lord. But notice, he's praying to the Father. And isn't that how Jesus taught us as well? Our, our Father. The, the pattern of the Bible is we pray to the Father in the Spirit through the Son. That's the pattern we pray. So we're focusing on the Father. We know we can't come to the Father except through His Son. Now here we will do well to just pause and meditate on this awesome privilege. I think we are so accustomed to calling God Father, we almost miss the power of that. That reality, Father. That should be one of the most amazing things you can call God. I love, I think J.I. Packer wrote and said, Father is the Christian name for God. That's how we, when we think of God, the word that should come up in our hearts is Father, my Father. It immediately reminds us of our adoption. Remember, we were not naturally born children of God. All of us were illegitimate children. All of us were on the outside. All of us were children of the devil at birth. We were children of wrath, chapter 2, verse 3. That is our natural state from birth. But God reached out. God sent His Son, His beloved Son. He paid for us. He paid for our sins. He adopted us. He chose us. He predestined us. For adoption into his family and it's only by that great grace of Christ on the cross that we can be called children of God remember 1 John 3 verse 1 it says see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are that's a privilege we already looked at in chapter 2 verse 18 just glance over there to 18 it says for through him through Christ we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We have access to the Father's ear. Listen to me. You will never pray if you do not believe God loves you. You won't pray. You will never pray if you are not convinced that He is your Father in heaven that loves you. Loves you infinitely more than you can ever imagine. You will never pray if you are still under the weight of your guilt and still believe God is angry over you because of your sin. All prayer must begin with the grace of God. It must begin with calling God our Father. And it's almost like we're telling ourselves the gospel again. God, I, my sins are washed away. I know that as far as the east is from the west, you have removed my sin. As a father has compassion on his son, so you have compassion on us. We remember that and we, we believe that. But Paul goes further. Look at verse 15. He goes further in verse 15 and says, The Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now in the Greek, there's a beautiful word play here. So the word for father is pater and he says family is the Greek word patria. So literally we, we read here, Blessed is the, or I bow my knee to the pater from whom all patrias come from. So it's the father of all fathers. 
the fathers of all families, the fathers of all other heads, the head of all heads, the head of every authority on, on earth. And notice the strong creation themes we have here. It says, um, from whom every family in heaven and on earth. That draws us back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Remember chapter 3 verse 9, just glance over there, it says, And to bring to light to everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. God is the creator of all things. But then he says God specifically does what of these families? He says he names them. He says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That's another creation theme. Remember the first three days, God names. He says he calls the day, or the day, or the sun, or the day. Oh, I missed it now. The light day and the night. Okay, I missed it. But he was calling things. <laughs> He's naming things, okay? And then when he makes Adam in his image, he gives him that privilege to do that as well, to name the animals. That's a sign of authority. When he, call, he names Eve, he's, he's showing his authority over Eve as well. Because that, that's really what it means. To name something shows your authority over that, that person or that thing. I have authority as a parent to, to name my son, to name my children. Right? That's a sign that I have authority. Imagine if a random stranger walks up and walks up to my son and says, You know what? Your name is Yaku. From now on, you are Yaku. And I'm like, Wait, but wait. What gives you the authority to name my son? That's our job. That's our authority, right? Now, the same thing. When God says he names every family, it's the point that, he's, that, that Paul is making. He's the creator of all things, and he has authority over all things, over every family in heaven and on earth. Now, I think what that, the easiest way to understand this is the families in heaven, the authorities in heaven, refers to the angels and the demons in the heavenly realms, and the families and being naming the families on earth refers to all earthly authorities like physical families, the government and authority structures. Remember, the government is also placed there by God. God is the one who puts in government. He's the one that can remove government. So he's the father of all fathers, the fathers of all authority in heaven and on earth. So here's the meaning. He says, I bow my knees before the father who has all authority over all other authorities. Now, let that sink in. How would you pray if you really believe that? Father, you love me infinitely more than I can imagine, and you have all authority to do whatever you please. So, Lord, here's my requests. I bring my request to you. Even Jesus in uh, the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, what's the next line? Who is in heaven. The same point. Father loves us. He is in heaven, authority, power, ruling. Psalm 115 verse 3, we've quoted this verse so many times, we're almost memorizing it here. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. You see, being in the heavens for God means He does whatever He pleases. God is never frustrated with His plans, with His will. Now again, how encouraging is that? Now we're coming to God who infinitely loves us, who have infinite authority over every single other authority to do whatever he please. Now pray. Pray with that in mind. Pray with that in your heart. Pray bringing your requests to God. Now if that's not enough to motivate you, there's one more aspect. Paul doesn't stop. He goes on. He continues to give us another aspect of God. Look at verse 15. The start of verse 15. I'm um, sorry, at verse 16. That 
according to the riches of his glory. He may grant you. You see, God is not only our Father, he's not only the God with all power and authority, but he's also a God who is infinitely rich with all resources at his disposal. You see, that, that's really what Paul is aiming at when he says, when, when God grants these requests according to the riches of his glory, he's thinking of God's limitless resources. So it's not as if God really loves us and God has authority or he has authority over all things, but he's just very poor. And therefore, he doesn't have resources to help us out. No. God is our Father. He loves us. He names the families. He has authority. And he answers us according to the riches of his glory. He has all resources. Nothing is too hard for him. I don't know if you've ever read this or ever caught it. In the, the Garden of Gethsemane, do you remember what Jesus prayed when he was praying to the Father three times? He said something. He says, God all things are possible for you. I find that so intriguing. Jesus knows the will of the Father is to die. But even there, he's appealing to this fact, this reality that for God, all things are possible. Lord, we, I know you can do all things. Lord, please, if there's some way, remove this cup from me. See, Jesus was even even bold to pray like that. And how much more should we pray like that? Lord, I know all things are possible for you. Lord, provide for us. Lord, strengthen us. Lord, help us. Lord, let there be a revival among us. Save people for your name. That person that seems unsavable. Lord, all things are possible for you. All loving, all powerful, all resources. God, our Father. That's who we are praying to. Beloved, I think we are too hasty in our prayers. Isn't it true? We start and we, we rush to our prayer list. We rush to our prayer request. We just rush to what God must do, what God has to do for us, what God has to accomplish for us without first patiently meditating on who He is, our Father in heaven. Just letting who He is strengthen us, encourage us, so learn to slow down. Learn to slow down in your prayers. That's the person. Here's the second point. Let's now turn to the petition of Paul. The petition he's praying for. Now, it's interesting. You must notice the prayer here. Paul is almost, it's almost functioning like steps. There's a step one, there's a step two, there's a step three, and there's a step four. And without the first step, the second step won't happen. And without the second step, the third step won't happen. So this is what he's praying for. It's, he's moving into steps. The first thing he's praying for is strength. Step two, so that, what will be the result of that? Christ may dwell in our hearts, so that, what will happen when that happens? So that we may understand the love of God. And what will happen when we understand the love of God? So that, the next step, is that we will be filled with all the fullness of God. It works in steps. So that's what we need. We need to, if you want the fullness of God, step four, you need to start at, the, at praying for strength. Step one. So here's the first, the first step is this. Paul prays for strength through the Spirit. Strength through the Spirit. Look at verse 16 again. It says, That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. What we need most as Christians is strength. We need strength. And not physical strength. We need spiritual strength. He doesn't pray for physical strength here for the believers. He's praying, Lord, strengthen them in there. Inner being, 
Let there be an inner strength, a, a spiritual strength. Paul said somewhere else that our outer man is wasting away. You cannot remain strong. Although the proverb says the glory of a young man is his strength, it's not going to last. We are going downwards. Gravity is going to do its work and age is going to do its work. But he says, although the outer man is wasting away, the inner man is being renewed day by day. They can, you can even become stronger as you grow older. When I, I, I am amazed when I find an old saint, like a Christian has been a Christian for like 40 years. And I'm saying there 40 years, I mean like born again, true Christian. I'm not talking about, you know, just going through the motions, really saved. These believers are incredibly strong. Have you ever noticed that? It's like they go through suffering. They go through things, hard things. They're like, the Lord will provide. I mean, 40 years, I've seen, I've seen him. <laughs> right? And, and us younger believers, we almost have to first taste God's promises. We have to like test it a few times. Like, okay, okay, now I see God's really serious. Like God's really ne never going to fail. He's never going to. But as an older believer, you just see his faithfulness and you just trust. It's so, and that's what God wants for us. He wants us to be that, to have that spiritual strength. That no matter where we are, we have a spiritual vitality, a spiritual strength in our inner being. And we need that to live for God. Think of just a couple of situations. If you, you are at work and there pops up a conversation about homosexuality, right? And you know when you have an opportunity to speak the truth and you rather say, yeah, I do think everybody has the ability to choose for themselves how they can live. And, and that's about what you say. You just stop there because you were scared of what people might think of you. And what's that? That's, you've given in. You've, you're spiritually weak. If you need to have a difficult conversation, you have to go and talk to someone, maybe your children, your spouse or your colleague or someone at church that you know. You have to have that difficult conversation. You have to make the phone call. You have to reach out and you just say, I'll do it next week. I'll do it the week after that. I'll do it. What you're doing, that's, that's spiritual weakness. That's not spiritual strength. When we as a church has to go through the process of church discipline where we have to remove the, sin, the sinning um, person from our midst and we say... Can we just skip this one? Doesn't this just seem harsh? Doesn't this, this doesn't make sense to us. What is that? Spiritual weakness. Not having spiritual strength to do what we are supposed to do. But you, you get the picture. It doesn't matter. Wherever God has called us to be obedient and we feel we, we, we fail, it's because of this reality. We don't have the strength by the Spirit to do it. And the opposite is true. That's how we do it, is by spiritual strength, by the Holy Spirit. You might say, how? How do I experience this, this strength? How do I get this strength? Well, simply doing what Paul is doing here. Praying for it. Asking for it. And here's another thing. is We often rely on our quiet times to carry us through the whole day. That's wrong. We need spiritual... Yes, that is a critical moment to gain spiritual strength. But in the temptation, in the moment, you need the strength... Pray right there then, Father, give me your spirit right now to speak the truth in love. Give me the strength right now not to be silent. Give me the strength right now to not be irritated, but to, to treat this person with love. Holy Spirit, control my heart, control my emotions, control my thoughts, control my emotions. Right now, right here, Lord. And that prayer is one second, two seconds long, but we pray that throughout the day when we need it. We need to pray like that over and over again. 
We have the engine, chapters 1 to 3. We have the roadmap, chapters 4 to 6. Now we need to turn on the engine through prayer, praying, asking God, Lord, I am weak. Strengthen me. That's the first step. We pray for spiritual strength in our inner being through the Spirit, which results in the second step, which is Christ at home in our hearts. Christ at home in our hearts. Look at verse 17. It says, notice the first phrase, so that. So what will happen when we have spiritual strength? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The result of spirit-filled obedience is experiencing Christ dwelling in you. Now, you might be a little bit confused, but wait, doesn't Christ already dwell in us? Like, why do we have to pray for strength that Christ may dwell in us? Isn't, doesn't Christ dwell in every believer and every Christian? Is this some kind of a second experience that we have to strive for as believers? No, that's not it. The answer is found in the Greek word for dwell. What is that word when it says Christ, that he may dwell in our hearts through faith? That word means to settle down, to live, to make your home, to be comfortable. The picture is someone who has total comfort. The idea of coming home and home sweet home. That, that's the kind of the word there, to dwell, to feel at peace, to feel comfortable. You see, it's possible for Christ to live in you and at the same time not be comfortable in you. Because there's so much sin he has to clean up all the time. There's so much garbage he has to clean all the time in your house and in your heart. Now, I'm not saying that um, we can ever be sinless or anything like that. But some of us, we, we live in that state of having a dirty heart and making the house dirty for Christ in that sense. He has no time. You know how this is. When your house is constantly dirty, you can't enjoy your house. You can't just settle down. You can't just make your home. You can't just relax because you're constantly cleaning up. That's how Jesus feels with some believers, right? He can't just settle down. He can't just have fellowship because he's constantly cleaning up. He's constantly have to, to deal with the, the sin in our hearts. John 14, 23 also gives a beautiful idea as well. Listen to this. It says, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus says, If we love him, we will keep his word word which is another way to say to obey him to to obey his word to do what he says and if we do that what will he and the father do make their home in us so the lesson here is encouraging and convicting it's encouraging and convicting do you want to have a closer experience with christ do you want to know his presence in a special and in a constant way then obey his word then walk in obedience that's the way. Step one is the pathway to step two. As we pray for spiritual strength, as we walk in holiness, that's when Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. And here's step three. Step three will lead us as Christ makes his home in us to understanding his love, understanding Christ's love. Look at verse 17 to 19. It says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that, and again, another that, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of God, love of Christ, sorry, that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
So notice he says we are already rooted and grounded in love in verse 17. So Christians are rooted and grounded. Whether you know that or not, whether you believe it or not, that's, already, that's where justification comes in. Whether you be sin or not sin, God does love every believer and His love doesn't change for us. There's a stability. Remember, rooted means is the imagery of a plant being rooted in the rich soil of God's love. And grounded is an architectural imagery that we are like a building that's firmly fixed, firmly grounded upon His love. So we all have, we all are in the love of God. We all understand the love of God if you are in Christ. But your experience of that will be affected by your obedience and by Christ's dwelling. Your experience of that love that surpasses all knowledge will be affected. Verse 18, that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now these dimensions, the height, the depth, is not four different aspects of his love, but it does show us, give us an illustration of his love. How broad is his love? Well, broad enough to encompass Jew and Gentile, people of every tribe and every tongue. How long is his love? How long is his love? It started from eternity past to eternity future. He loves us with an eternal love. How high is his love? It raised us from the dead and seated us with him in the heavenly places. How deep is his love? He descended into the grave, into the lowest regions of the earth. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's how low he went for us, for, to save us from our sins. Who can understand this love? How, how can anyone comprehend how vast this love is? That he would take enemies that are worthy of nothing but his wrath. We deserve nothing but hell. Nothing. But he gives us everything. In eternity of joy, in eternity of pleasure, in eternity of being with God. It doesn't make sense. It's a love that doesn't make sense. And that's why we read the paradox. Did you, did you pick up the paradox in verse 19? It says, To know the love of God, of Christ, that surpasses knowledge. Okay, now all the logic students are like tingling here. Right? How can you know something which surpasses knowledge. We call that a contradiction. You can't know something that you cannot know, that surpasses knowing. But again, Paul doesn't, he's not trying to contradict himself here. Paul is saying, listen, I want you to experience something of the love of God, which is going to take you in eternity to understand. I want you to already dabble <laughs> or plunge your toes into the ocean of God's love. I want you to feel it now. I want you to experience it right here, right now, which is going to take you forever to know. It's like sending people out to study the ocean. After a while, they might come back and tell you of their experience and they've, they've found out true facts about the ocean, but they've barely scratched the surface. I found the statistic quite interesting. Do you know how much of the ocean we've discovered? 5%. 5% of our ocean is explored. 95% is unexplored. That's, okay, that scares me once. What, what lives down there? What have we not discovered down there yet? But in the same way, that's how Christians are knowing the love of, love of God. We, we truly can taste and see that the Lord is good. 
And that's one reason why we are looking forward to heaven and looking forward to being there because we will never stop exploring. I, I hope this makes sense. It makes sense to my mind. Eternity is too short to know God. It's too short. We need more time than eternity. And that's what, is, that's what eternity is going to make amazing. Now, some of you might say, but I, I don't feel it. I don't experience this love the love of Christ. How can I experience it? Well, remember, this is step three. Go back to step one. Go back there. Okay, I'm not feeling the love of God. Okay, have you prayed for strength by the Spirit? Are you walking in holiness, walking in obedience? Is Christ dwelling in your heart through faith? Then, and only then, will you know what is unknowable. Will you know that which transcends our knowledge? Is your heart clean for Christ? Are you cleaning? Are you quick to repent and slow to sin? That's really how we, our attitude towards sin must be like that. Quick to sin, quick to repent and slow to sin. And what an amazing motivation to be holy. What an amazing motivation to, to put off our old man and to put on the new man. I want to know Christ's love. I want to understand it. I want to experience it in my heart. Now, just as another reminder, this, of course, doesn't mean that Jesus loves us less when we sin or when our hearts are filthy. Remember, we are all, God does delight in all of his children. But really, this is also true. Some believers grieve the Holy Spirit more than other believers. Ephesians 4 says, do not grieve the Spirit. That means it's possible to constantly grieve the Spirit and other believers do not grieve the Spirit. As often, and we need to come to the point where we it grieves us when we grieve the spirit, it, it pains us when we are paining him. And we say, Lord, I, I long to know you more, I long to experience your love more and more. And here's the final step the final step is that after this, you'll be filled with all the fullness of God. Look at verse 19 it says, To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that next step, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Like God filled the, the physical temple with his presence, so God wants to fill this new temple, this new creation, his church, with his presence, with his fullness. And this is a, did you notice a Trinitarian fullness here? Did you notice that? The fullness of God requires the strength of the Holy Spirit. It requires the love of Christ, that we may be filled with God the Father. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We want to be filled with the Trinity, to know and to experience the Trinity. Beloved, this is the petition of Paul for the church. This is his prayer for us. So a basic application for us. Can we start praying like this for one another? Can we, can we start organizing our priorities on our prayer list and in our minds to say, Lord, we want to we pray for the spiritual needs of your people. We want to pray for holiness. We want to pray that we might be strengthened with inner strength. We want to pray that we might put off our sin and we might walk in holiness, Lord. Help us to, to pursue you, to pursue Christ. May, and Lord, we desire your fullness. We want to, to experience the fullness of your presence within our personal lives and within our church. Lord, please, will you grant this according to the riches of your glory? And let's close our time with the praise, the praise of prayer. Verses 20 to 21, it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, 
according to the power to work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Lord, remember, Paul cannot, he cannot stay long in theology without moving to doxology. Doxology meaning a word of praise. As Paul is thinking of God, thinking of who he is, praying about it and praying that for other people, he just bursts out in the doxology. He bursts out to praise God. And he has every reason to praise God in verse 20. Now, if you take one word at a time there, you will start to feel the impact of it. If you take one word at a time. Imagine I just told you, God is able to do what you ask him for. Now, that's already good, right? That's already encouraging. Wow, God is, whatever I'm praying for, God is able to do that. Now, let's take it one step up. God is able to do all that we ask for. All of it. Wow, okay, thanks. That's amazing. But he's not done. God is able to do more than we ask for. More. Not just what we ask for. He's able to even do far abundantly what we ask for, right? And now look at the text. He says, God is able to do far more abundantly. It's as if he just goes all the way. Not just what we ask for. Not just above what we ask for. He's far more abundantly than all that we ask for. Okay, Paul, we get the idea. He's able and he's able to do even more. But then he adds one more thing. He says, God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. I absolutely love that. God sometimes answers our desires of our hearts for what we didn't pray for. You know that verse, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. As we delight ourselves in God, he often fulfills our desires without us even praying for it. Like, wow, I didn't even realize I wanted that, but I really did want that. So Lord, thank you for that. I remember um, just a recent example in my own life is I never, I didn't have, I didn't like express it to God in prayer that I had a deep longing to share the gospel with someone. Because as a pastor, you'll realize living in a bubble, you're always with other believers. You never really get rubbing shoulders with unbelievers. And, and sometimes I'm just longing for, to talk to someone that doesn't love Jesus. I don't, that, that sounds weird, but just to like talk to people that doesn't love him that I can share the gospel with. And by his providence, he brought the counseling case into my, into my, my lap. And I didn't even seek for this. And I just shared the gospel of this person, just explained the basic gospel, the basic good news. And I remember walking away and realizing, wow, God granted the desires of my heart. And I didn't even know that was what I was longing for, but he did it anyway. He's far more, he can do even more than where we ask or think. Now let's apply that even to our church right here. We've been praying for countries. Do you actually believe that makes a difference? We've been praying for our government. Do you believe as we pray that God is working, God is hearing those prayers and he's answering them according to his will and his counsel? When we pray for one another, God actually hears us. He's actually answering those prayers and even more abundantly than what we're asking for. We're changing the world in Port Shrem because we're praying to the God of the world. We're praying to Him to move in these countries and to move in, in our government. And we're trusting Him. Lord, we trust and we know You are able. So what should be the result? Verse 21. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Why does God save us? Why does God answer our prayers? Why does he bless us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Why will he show us his unending kindness in the ages to come? To glorify his name. For his name's sake. 
That's why he does it. He gets the glory. We get the joy. That's how it works. That's what praise is. Praise is to joyfully praise someone. You don't have to work at praise. You know this when you are either newly wed or you are in a relationship. You just praise. Praise, praise, praise. Oh, this lady. You have to know this lady. Or, oh, this man. You have to understand this man. This man is amazing, right? And what you're doing is you're praising. But you're not like, okay, I, I need to remember to compliment my spouse. And I need to remember. Why not? Because it, your joy is so high and so much, it just flows out of your mouth. Now, there's still a discipline in that, I believe. But again, one of the essential ingredients to true praise is joy. Is joy. We have a name for people who praise God without joy. We call them hypocrites. Hypocrites. Singing songs to God while our hearts are cold, ice cold for God. That's hypocrisy. But that's what God wants us. He wants us to meditate on these things. He wants us to pray and ask for spiritual strength that Christ may dwell, that we might know His love, that He may dwell with His fullness in us, and that He might answer that above what we can imagine to glorify His name so that He will get the glory throughout all generations. Think of that, all generations. Gener glory to God in your parents' generation. He deserves the glory for that. Glory to God in my generation, in our generation. Glory to God in Jordan and Alakai and Danica and Caitlin's and all the children I didn't mention. We already have too many children to mention all of them, right? We, there's already a next generation that we want to say, Lord, glorify your name in this generation, in this lower generation. May they know you. And God will get the glory in every generation. Be still and know that I am God. And what's the next line? I will be glorified in the nations. I will. Be still about that. Be still that my name will be praised. My name will be glorified. Glory to God in every single generation. Blood with this great God, He is our Father. He has authority over authority. He has, He's the family, Father of all fathers. He has all resources, all riches. Shall we not pray to Him? Shall we not bring our requests to Him? Is there anything too difficult for Him? Let us not be lazy in our prayers. Let us not be slow to pray, but let us come to the God who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we confess that when we come to you in prayer, our hearts are often so encumbered and so burdened by the cares of this world and maybe even our own sin. Lord, that we struggle to just slow down and think about who you are. Think about your grace. Think about the cross and think about your glory and your riches and your power and your authority to answer our prayers. Even above what we ask for. Even above what we think. Oh Lord, may we be a church. May this temple be the house of prayer. May we never despise praying. May we never despise praying to you as a church corporately and even privately in our homes, in our rooms. Father, draw us 
closer to you. We pray for that spiritual strength from your spirit, Lord. Lord, we are weak and we often sin. We often fail. We often are cowards and turn away, Lord. And like Peter, deny you. Oh, Lord, but thank you for, for prayer. And thank you that we can confess our sins to you and even ask, Lord, for, for the next time we will need your strength. Lord, we pray already for that now. Please, Lord, help us to, to walk in holiness, to be strengthened in our inner man, to be obedient to you. Lord, let the prayers of your people rise up and may we truly pray together more and more. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.